I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This series contains discussions of violence and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Algorithm, journalist Thomas Hargrove developed a computer program to try to detect serial killers. We selected 10 major cities that appeared to have a suspicious number of algorithm-identified murders, and Gary was one of those 10. Hargrove reached out to police in Gary, Indiana, and told them about a suspicious cluster of strangulations in the area, but he didn't hear back. He did, however, get through to the coroner's office, which assigned one of its coroner's assistants to look at the issue. She totally bought into the idea that these could be connected murders and was trying to have a conversation with the Gary Police Department. So what was going on in Gary, Indiana? And why weren't the Gary Police talking to Hargrove? From iHeartMedia and Tenderfoot TV, this is Algorithm. I'm Ben Kiebrick. Gary sits on the sand dunes of Lake Michigan just 15 miles southeast of downtown Chicago. Growing up in Chicago, did you have any kind of sense of Gary? There's a whole song about Gary in the musical, The Music Man. Gary, Indiana. What a wonderful name. That was quite a joke because Gary, Indiana was not an attractive place to live. The city of Gary was founded by the U.S. Steel Corporation in 1906 to house a massive new steel mill. It's 4th of July when the Vespers go into action, and here's your action. Roman candles lancing the blackness of the night. Gary shot up like a rocket to meet the U.S. Steel Corporation's needs. Its population grew to over 100,000 people by 1930, 
and it became the second largest city in Indiana. The steel jobs in Gary paid well and didn't require formal education or even much English, so it became a destination for immigrants, especially young men. Shrouded by smoke from the steel mills, it gained a reputation both as a city of industry, but also a city of vice with gambling, prostitution, and violence. When the Great Migration began, Gary's steel jobs attracted black workers who were leaving the Jim Crow South for better opportunities up north. And in 1967, Gary became one of the nation's first cities to elect a black mayor, Richard D. Hatcher. This has been one of the most significant campaigns in the history of our city. It marks the end of years of corrupt machine control. This is indeed a great day for the city of Gary. Gary was also the birthplace of Michael Jackson, and the Jackson Five released their first single, Big Boy, in 1968 on Gary's own Steel Town Records label. But just as the U.S. Steel Corporation created Gary seemingly overnight, the company also left the city in a lurch. It's summed up well in the film Original Gangsters. Back in the 50s, the community was supported by the U.S. Steel Mill. It was damn hard work, but people raised their families well. Then just 20 years later, without warning, U.S. Steel shut down 70% of the mill. First, the workers thought it was temporary, but it wasn't. Their savings went, unemployment ran out, and that has been the inheritance of the children of Gary. Gary's story is similar to other Rust Belt cities, just more extreme. Because the whole city was built around the steel mill, so the loss of steel jobs destroyed the local economy. And at the same time, many white residents fled and took their tax base with them. The population shrunk and people abandoned their homes. And without jobs or money to provide social services, crime grew. Throughout the 90s, Gary often had the highest homicide rate in the nation. And that period during the 90s, when Gary was experiencing this extremely high homicide rate, that's the same period where Hargrove's algorithm starts detecting unsolved strangulations in Gary. And that's probably at least part of the reason why when Hargrove reached out to the Gary Police Department, they didn't respond. The police already knew that Gary had too many unsolved murders, but the department was under-resourced. They were struggling to investigate recent murders, let alone cold cases going back more than a decade. But when Jackie, the assistant coroner, saw Hargrove's list, it didn't matter to her how old these cases were. It was a tragedy that they'd gone unsolved in the first place. Hello? Hi, this is uh, Ben. I'm the journalist that reached out to you. Oh, hi. How are you? What can I do for you? I told Jackie that I was looking into the cold cases from Hargrove's algorithm, and I wanted to know more about the investigation she'd done back in 2010. My boss came to me with a letter at the time. He asked me if I, you know, would read it and look into it or whatever, and of course I will, you know. I mean, that's what our job was. We were supposed to look into stuff. So uh, I started by pulling the charts because we didn't have no computer system to show us that. Hargrove's algorithm had identified a cluster of 15 strangulations that had taken place between 1991 and 2007, and all of those homicides were listed as unsolved. 
I started just making a chart, you know, females, where they were found, how they were killed. And she looked to see what evidence had been collected. Importantly, she wanted to know if rape kits had been performed. If so, there might be DNA evidence that could show if cases were linked to each other or to other cases from across the U.S. As she went through the cases, one victim stood out to Jackie. The 2006 murder of Essie Mitchell. Mitchell was an 84-year-old woman who'd been strangled and sexually assaulted right outside her own home. You don't find that too often where somebody rapes and kills a grandma in their yard. And it reminded Jackie of two other recent murders that had stood out to her. Both were old women who had been sexually assaulted and killed near their homes. One of these murders had taken place in Gary, and Jackie had worked on the case personally. Another one took place in nearby Hammond, and she'd heard about it from a co-worker. Yeah, it was pretty upsetting that day when I had my case, and then I found out somebody else had one, you know, a town over... And then you're like, what in the world? Jackie had already wondered if those two cases were connected. And now, with the extra name on Hargrove's list, she was even more suspicious. But, you know, I got hurt and then I got let go, so. I'm curious, and um, no worries if this is too personal, but what what happened? Oh, I got hurt at work. Uh, We were carrying bodies out of a house. The other person had dropped their end, and I hung on and it pulled my vertebrae in my neck and busted it. I got a cadaver bone put in and a plate, and then I couldn't go back to work because I can't physically do the work. You know, it happens to people all the time. So, you know, my idea was, you know, stay positive. You can still help people, you know, see your grandkids more than you ever could. (laughs) But then you start to look back at this stuff and you start to realize how people, you know, they could use another head, you know. Is that something you're interested in, like continuing looking into this stuff? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I would love to help people find some kind of comfort or closure. Working in true crime, you hear a lot about the concept of closure. Victims' relatives sometimes express ambivalence about the idea. But Jackie is speaking from a place of personal experience. When she was in college, her niece disappeared. She was a Jane Doe for a long time. We didn't know where she was. And, oh, wow. And so, you know, somebody found out and worked hard enough to let us know. And she went from missing person to identified. And, you know, that's nice. Yeah. So, Did they eventually find the, the killer? Or? No, they never arrested no one for her. Hmm. So, Yeah. I switched my college around and, and ended up getting into this, you know. I thought if I could help some other family, that would be great. Yeah. So, you know, you get a, a reason why you do things, I think, you know. And Jackie wonders if there's more that needs to be done with Hargrove's list and with the research that she did back in 2010. I hate to see somebody else's kid get killed when there's ways it can possibly be stopped. You know, if you have a pattern or something, I'm sure, you know, the police know how to follow all that. So you're saying your boss kind of, like, told you to look into this. Did you ever, like, go back to him? Um, Oh, sure, we went over stuff. And do you know if that ever, like, was given to the police or...? Oh, yeah, I I worked with uh, the Gary police going over it. Uh, Homicide detectives Hmm. went over it with me. My chart I had made. 
So they were interested in it and they were taking it seriously, you felt? Well, yeah. I mean, if you bring something to the police, they take it serious. <laughs> Normally. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just because Hargrove wasn't sure. So I think Hargrove sent them the letter and they didn't want to get yeah. back to him. Maybe they were giving Hargrove a harder time, but me being at the coroner's office and always working with them, you know, they came down to my office more than once, I could say that and sat down with me with the file that I'd pulled and the chart I'd made. They did do that. The Gary detectives did come down and, and see what I had, you know. But, you know, we're not police. I can only do so much, and you don't know what really happens in their departments and stuff. Jackie wasn't sure what the detectives did with the information she'd given them, and she'd still been doing research and pulling documents when she injured her back and lost her job. She doesn't think any analysis at the coroner's office picked up the project once she left. In October 2010, Hargrove published his story about the algorithm and its various findings across the nation. The final version included only a few lines on Gary about the letter Hargrove sent to police describing strangulations going back to the 90s and how the letter had prompted Jackie's investigation. And it seemed like that was that, a set of murders in Northwest Indiana unlikely to ever be solved. Until four years later, on October 17, 2014, when Africa Hardy was strangled and those cold cases Hargrove had identified suddenly didn't seem so cold. Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to jump away from the algorithm for a bit here and focus on Africa Hardy's investigation and how her case came to be linked to a serial killer. For years, very little was known about what happened to Africa Hardy. Police never released much about their investigation. Do you, do you know with Indiana law, is there any way to get a copy of records like that? I have no idea. Um, I don't know what the limits are for their open records law. Um, what Hammond did might be available to you if you push for it. They don't want to talk about it either, I assume, because they don't want to embarrass their neighboring police agency. But at the same time, it might be an open record. I, I don't know. You should, yeah. try, you should try to find out. That would be, you'd be the first to do that. Last April, through Indiana's version of the Freedom of Information Act, I requested all the information related to Africa's case and cases that could be connected. For five months, my request got bounced around between the Hammond police and their legal department. I was told they'd have to figure out what, if anything, they were allowed to release. I wasn't sure if I'd ever get these documents, so I tried to interview anyone I could who was connected to the case. I heard stories of conspiracies and police incompetence, but it was hard to sort through what was real and what was just a rumor, especially because some of the people closest to the case, like the officers in the Hammond Police Department, had been prohibited from speaking to me on the record. Then, in September, I got an email with a link. It was a Dropbox folder with 45 gigs worth of videos, including audio from the night Africa died. Hammond, number one. Hey, Hammond, this is Gary transferring the call. Okay. Female at Motel 6 saying a female is unresponsible. She thinks she did. Okay. Hello, ma'am. Okay, ma'am, yes, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, what room are you in, ma'am? 158. 158? When was the last time you saw her? Um, Earlier today, like around... <laughs> okay, I need you to... Maybe, uh, like, three, like 3 o'clock. Okay, I need you like to go ahead. O'clock. Is there any blood or anything on her? No. Okay, I need you to go ahead and take, do you know how to take your fingers and put them on the side of her neck? I want to know if you have a pulse. No, I'm so scared to do that. I'm so scared. On October 17th at 9.30 p.m., 
Africa Hardy's friend Shamika had discovered Africa's body in the bathtub of a Motel 6 in Hammond, Indiana. The clock was now ticking. The first 48 hours following a murder are the most crucial to solving it. Crime scene investigators found signs of a struggle. There was a shirt button on the floor, a broken fingernail, and a torn condom wrapper. They found blood on a pillowcase and a knit hat under the bed. And it appeared that someone had rifled through Africa's belongings because her wallet and ID were there, but her cell phone was missing. Police checked to see if any nearby security cameras had captured footage of the motel parking lot or the door outside Africa's room. They brought Shamika back to the station, and Detective Sean Ford started interviewing her just after midnight. How long have you known Africa? I met her this summer, and um, we became real close, closer than anybody that I ever met that quick. Detective Ford and Shamika sat at a small table in a bare, windowless room. Shamika was wearing a pink sweatshirt with the hood up and looked nervous. Shamika told police that Africa had been working as an escort at the Motel 6 and that she'd sought out clients by posting ads on Backpage.com, an online classifieds website that's since been shut down. I know you've been through a hard deal tonight. Here's where the problem lies. I have to start eliminating people as much mm-hmm. as I put them in. So, yeah. like, obviously, you're the last one to see her alive, and you're the one to find her, mm-hmm. okay? You've been in her company all day long and nobody else. Mm-hmm. Now, could she have contacted some guy on here and he killed her during a date or something? Very possible. Mm-hmm. But as an investigator, I have to remain very objective and look at the whole picture. Let's go through today real quick. Okay. Where did you wake up today? Me and Africa. Yeah, were you guys together? Yeah, at my mom's place. What time do you think you got up? Late. <laughs> 10, 11, Shamika says she dropped off Africa at the Motel 6 around 2 or 2.30 p.m. She says Africa met up with one client in the early afternoon, and another man had called and said he was interested in meeting her. The guy was calling like he really was interested and that he really was coming. He kept calling saying he's going to come for sure, you know, that he really liked their pictures and that he's going to come and that he just has to get a babysitter and as soon as he gets it, he'll come, so. When would you say the first time you started calling Africa? I talked to her a few times, a couple times, just about little stuff here and there, uh, even before the first guy came. Um, I know right before she had the second client, we talked maybe twice, but it was real short. The second guy being who? The one that came at um, 5.13. She actually called me and told me. She was like, he's here. And that was at 5.13? Is that what you're saying that time? Yeah. Okay. Did you ever hear from her again? It's hard to hear, but Shamika said that after Africa called at 5.13 to say the second client had arrived, Shamika didn't hear from her again. After 5.13, how many times do you think you called her? Shamika was worried about Africa, so she called up her friend Eduardo, and they headed to the motel. I don't even know if she slipped someone. I'm like, I don't want to the rope. So we kind of listened, you know, to the door and put the key in. We didn't see anyone. 
it was just like the bed, like got away from the wall a little bit. And then um, I see her shoe on the floor. And then um, we turned on the light, which is on the outside of the bathroom. As soon as I laid my ass on, I just ran back. And he's like, call the police, call the ambulance, call the police. And then they asked me, was she, um, was she breathing or did she have a pulse? I'm too scared to touch her pulse, but Eduardo did. He touched it and he's like, it's nothing now. At around 12.30 a.m., another officer enters the interrogation room. How you doing, Shamika? How you doing? It's Detective Ford's boss, Captain Zeke Hinojosa. Call me Zeke for short. Hinojosa sits down and shakes Shamika's hand. Had you guys ever dealt with this guy before? No, sir. Did you see him at all? Yeah, the same thing. You talked to him at all on the phone? No, sir. Okay. So what number did he call her from? What number? Um, yes. I made sure I remember the number. Uh, 312. What made you remember that number? Because we always do some type of protection with each other, tell each right. other the number, tell each other maybe the license plate. In case something happens. In case something happens. Okay. What else did she say to you? She said he sounded like an older guy. What do you consider older? What would she consider older? 30, 30 for now. Okay. That's important when you're 19. I'm an old man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. Did she show you the number? She showed me a text. You text the whole page saying how gorgeous and how much he likes her pictures and stuff like that. Okay. Hinojosa thanks Shamika, jots down a note, and then leaves the room. Obviously, while we go over this, there's people working on other stuff, so we just got to get through, you know, some of the stuff here. Now, does she have anybody that you know of that would want to hurt her or anything like that? She was a good girl. I mean, I know it's probably hard to believe because of the situation that happened, but to still with a good hearted person would give you her last. Now, I don't know how far this is going to progress or how fast. I mean, if we can make an arrest tonight, I'll make an arrest tonight. Obviously, in an investigation, we have to look at all angles of everything. The phone you have on you right now, what's the phone number on that? 773. Do you mind if I look in here on this phone? It's not. It doesn't not linked with this, so it's not going to help anybody. Well, I kind of need to to look, but it's up to you. I'm not going to force you to or anything like that. I don't, I don't want you to see. No. Okay. <laughs> um, do you have any other phones on you or anything like that? Mm-hmm. All right. As we sit here today, you had nothing to do that led to the death of your friend. No, absolutely no. I would never touch a hair on anybody. So. No, I'm not saying that you killed her, but oh. I'm saying sometimes people... Here, here's what I'm worried about. No, this one, I, this business here. My right hand on the Holy Bible, so I would never do anything to harm anybody. Okay. I'm talking about I love animals, I love kids, I love but everybody. But just listen to what I'm saying. This business here is very rough. And sometimes what we find is People almost become like a prisoner or a slave to this kind of work. And there are people behind the scenes pulling strings and making money. And I just want to make sure that something didn't happen here today where your good friend got killed. And there's a reason that maybe you're scared and you can't tell me what happened. I would never be scared or afraid to say something like that. Never. I will tell you anything and everything that I know. I would never not tell. I want you to find this person. 
So I was, I'm not scared of anybody. Don't nobody got me under hostage or in control. No, I'm not a weak-minded person. I've been, well, I'm not saying that you I've been are. a lot, but I'm very strong-minded, sir, and I will not let anybody scare me or do anything this devilish. And you have no idea, other than the numbers you provided us, who could have done this? Will that number be in that phone at all? This number? No. What makes you uncomfortable about me having this phone? Because it might be like naked pictures or something like that, or pictures with outfits on and stuff like that, that's all. Okay. Maybe we could look through here together so that I'm not looking through your stuff, you know, but where I can, you know, actually see the, the call out. Captain Hinojosa opens the door and leans his head into the room. Can I see you just for one second? Yeah. Detective Ford leaves the room for three minutes. Then he returns with Hinojosa. It's now almost 1.30 in the morning. All right, real quick. You said you called 911, right? Mm-hmm. Did you use this phone to call 911? Hello. How many phones do we have on you right now? Um, it's an easy question. How many phones do you have on you right now? I have my work phone. Okay, I check them out. Okay, why didn't you tell us that though? Because I don't want you to know. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Small 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's now 1.30 a.m. on the night of Africa's murder. Her friend Shamika has just revealed to police that she's had a second phone on her this whole time, and it's the one with the number that they'd posted to Backpage.com. Why didn't you tell us that, though? Because I don't want you to know, at first, that I was even working at all. We are not worried about that. Are y'all not? No. No. No? I promise you, we are not interested about prostitution. We're interested about solving this homicide. The whole encounter shows how difficult it is for sex workers to report crimes to police, which then in turn complicates trying to solve these crimes. Luckily, in this case, Detective Ford and Captain Hinojosa managed to convince Shamika that they aren't interested in prosecuting her for facilitating sex work. And Shamika starts to give them a more accurate story of what really happened. That's the phone she was working on, so everything is in there. Okay, everything's in there, including the number that the guy mm-hmm. called from. That's why you knew the number, mm-hmm. because you actually had the phone. The way the system worked, Shamika talked to and booked Africa's clients. Then she'd call Africa or text the information to Africa's personal phone. Shamika says that when the 513 appointment should have been finished, Shamika tried to get in touch with Africa right away. I knew it was like over an hour. I was calling her phone. I was calling his phone. And then I started threatening to call the police. So I really was just trying to tell her this so she could call me and be like, no, everything's okay. You don't have to call the police. But then she started texting stuff like, you scaring him. You got a text message from her phone saying you're scaring him. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to mess mm-hmm. up business. I don't want to scare him or whatever. Okay. But then after that, she started texting stuff that I know she didn't text. Like, she texted something that said, I have a client. It's going to be a long day. I'll see you in two hours. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm right. These texts that were coming from Africa were a big red flag because Shamika was the one who talked to and booked Africa's clients. But before Shamika could get anything resolved, she says her phone ran out of batteries. When she got the phone charged and turned back on, she saw that she'd received more strange messages. But these weren't messages from Africa's phone, but from the 513 client. As soon as I turned it on, that number text back. I was like, can I come back? And then it's like, you're still there? And that was it. Shamika wasn't sure what to make of the messages. She was terrified for Africa, 
but she was also worried that if she went to the police, she could get them both arrested for prostitution. So she decided to check on Africa herself. And that's when she went to the motel with Eduardo. Detective Ford starts going through Shamika's text messages, and he gets to one that she hadn't yet mentioned. There's one in here I want to ask you about. It was a text from Shamika's phone to Africa's. Make sure you hide your money good, because the other client is waiting outside. What is this referring to? This is you speaking, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, what, what does that mean, though? Because the other client is waiting outside. Some other guy had texted whatever, saying that he, he wanted her too, but he was... He was coming at the same time as the other guy, like double bump ahead. Okay. So where is his text at? The guy that was outside. Okay, this is him saying you missed out. He's leaving. Mm-hmm. So he's there. Mm-hmm. He was there. You know who this is? No. Oh my fucking God. I never paid attention to what you said when you did not kind of jump now. But he never made it in, it don't look like. Why don't think he did? As you if he watched the guy leave that killed your friend. Detective Ford picks up the phone and starts walking out the door. Are you guys track your phone, though? Well, we're working on a couple different things, and, you know, that's one of them. It was now 2.30 a.m., around nine hours after Africa had been killed. Police continued working through the night, chasing down leads. Using the text messages from Shamika's second cell phone, police requested search warrants for the 513 client's phone records. Meanwhile, other detectives poured through surveillance footage from the motel and businesses nearby. One camera captured footage of a man in a puffy jacket entering Africa's room shortly after 5.13 p.m. At 5.58, he leaves the room and runs out to a blue Jeep. Another security camera captured the Jeep's license plate, and Bureau of Motor Vehicle Records showed it was registered to a woman named Regina Beard who lived in Gary, Indiana. Police found that the 513 client's cell phone was also registered to Regina Beard at the same address, 20 minutes away from the Hammond Police Station in a neighborhood on the south side of Gary. At 5.15 p.m., just 24 hours after Africa had been killed, detectives raced out to the address. It was a small, one-story brick house directly across from a church, and parked in front of the house was the blue Jeep they were looking for. Next time on Algorithm. I'm not going to lie. It was scary because we would only be maybe four of us in the house. And we don't know who's in the house or who's in the area and if they like police officers or not. I just want to make sure I get what I want. What are you trying to get out of this? Because, say, you could be crazy. You could be sitting here and talking some mad okay, crazy, crazy stuff. 158 Motel 6, room 158. Is that all they're putting? Is she on your consciousness? Have you ever seen a person choke? This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Kiebrick. Algorithm is executive produced by Alex Williams, Donald Albright, and Matt Frederick. Production assistance and mixing by Eric Quintana. 
The music is by Makeup and Vanity Set and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Christina Dana, Miranda Hawkins, Jamie Albright, Rima El Kailai, Trevor Young, and Josh Thane for their help and notes. And thanks for listening. I've uh, put a ton of work into this show over the last year, and I really appreciate all the feedback I got after episodes one and two. Uh, So if you haven't yet, please uh, reach out, subscribe, and leave a review. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.